I'm Tom, obviously, and want to welcome you here. And we're in an interesting situation this weekend, both in terms of learning more about the Enneagram and some of the details of it and some of the interconnections from people's core styles to what the Enneagram would describe as built-in connections. I would model them essentially as sides to your character as a way to think about it. And hopefully this will be illuminating to some degree and confusing to some degree. As a famous hypnotherapist, Milton Erickson, once said, confusion is the doorway to new learnings. And I think that with absorbing the Enneagram and really getting it and integrating it and making it your own, rather than just reading about it or hearing other people's versions of it, where it's more like a rumor about something real, as you do this in some way that's relevant to you and makes it count for something in your life and improve daily life in some way, there is a natural passage of confusion that takes place. There's sort of no way around it. The Enneagram's a deep and complex subject. I don't think it's really very much about types so much as it is about reality strategies that people have. Nine ways that the human unconscious tends to make sense of reality and to narrow reality in a way that helps you function and to render down the vast amount of sensory input that we could be experiencing at any moment in time and giving it a shape and a form and in a way a story, a script. Another way to think about an Enneagram style is as a kind of script, a personal story that you're living out, sometimes in ways that offer you choices and benefits and options and possibilities and other times in a way that offers you limitations. And when you're creating limitations from within your Enneagram story, your Enneagram style, your Enneagram strategy, one way to think about that is you're doing what you know how to do best too much. In other words, it's like overusing a strength. So it's like when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's like over-relying on a strategy that serves you well most of the time and has worked in the past, but maybe you do it too often and too much. I travel to Europe quite a bit and Occasionally, I'll see an American tourist who is in a circumstance where the tourist doesn't speak the local language and they're talking to somebody who doesn't speak American. And the person's response when they discover that the person they're talking to doesn't speak their language is to talk louder. <laughs> and it's a little like what happens within an Enneagram style, you know, the tendency to overuse something that you know how to do can essentially turn something that is a gift into something that is a limitation. And so people are often looking for ways to work with their Enneagram style, work with the pattern of it and how to change it and how to really use it to grow rather than just know about it and yet not know what to do next. And this workshop this weekend will emphasize that a little bit because your core Enneagram style has built-in connections to a number of Enneagram styles. Those will include the Enneagram styles that we'll talk about this weekend, what are called the wings, are the two Enneagram styles on either side of your basic Enneagram style, and then also what are called stress and security points, which are thought to be built-in connections that you naturally incline towards or may have a tension towards or may have both a connection to the high side and to the low side, which I'll talk about. And then also the Enneagram style of your parents. So we all carry our parents with us. In psychology, they call it introjecting and we all carry our parents around. We have a side of our character that is like our mother or our father or whoever raised us. And that mother and that father had an Enneagram style. So you have a connection to those Enneagram styles as well. And those can be either healthy connections or unhealthy connections depending on how you use them and cultivate them 
and how aware you are of them. But there's no way to predict who has what parents. You can't say a nine always has an eight parent and a three parent, or a, a seven always has a two parent and a five parent. And so this is quite an individual thing, and it's worth thinking about in your own experience, trying to identify the Enneagram styles of your parents. And that's another layer to this work. In addition, there are the subtypes, which you may have read about or had more experience with than that. Also that's another layer. And then there are the connections that we'll be concentrating on this weekend, the wings and stress and security points. In sum, to me, this creates a kind of liquid mosaic, a way of looking at character that is somewhat fluid. It's not real rigid. People, when they're first learning the Enneagram, they get a little type happy. And sometimes they correct that, sometimes they lapse into a mentality with it and they stay that way. I think it's partially because the Enneagram is difficult to integrate and you have to study it for a while in order to get it and make it your own. The tendency is to want to grab onto cues to make the whole thing simpler. A lot of times people will look at external behavior and then they'll try to deduce from someone's external behavior what their inner Enneagram style is. It'd be a fine thing if it worked. The problem with looking at external behavior is that you don't know what motivates it internally. In other words, I drive in traffic sometimes and sometimes I notice in my rear view mirror somebody's tailgating me. For reasons I'll explain later, tailgating irritates me. Now, I've known a number of twos where it's come out in interviews that they tailgate. And it makes a certain amount of sense if you think about it. Somebody who wants to be connected to other people and close to other people is literally close to them in traffic. But I can't, in my irritation, look in the mirror and say, oh, damn, another two is on my tail. <laughs> that would be cart before the horse, sort of bass backwards. And so you almost need another way to divine someone's internal Enneagram style before you then understand the external behavior. In other words, it's not the behavior itself, it's what motivates it that is an indicator of the inner style. I hear occasionally about workshops where they try to teach typing, where the idea is to learn how to type in a weekend or over the course of several seminars. But I always thought that if I was going to teach a workshop on typing, the best way to do it would be to teach mistyping because there are predictable mistakes and errors that you make while you're trying to understand this system that are very consistent. And if you just had a seminar where you just made all those mistakes and did everything wrong that you could, then whatever was left over would be the seed of a good strategy for becoming competent at identifying Enneagram styles. Some people come to these seminars and they don't know their Enneagram style yet. They've had some familiarity with the system, but they haven't quite put their finger on what is their central reality strategy. What is the basic thread or the core story that's running through their behavior and the patterns of their life as they look back over? And that's fine. Some of the time it's because the Enneagram essentially asks them a question that they haven't been used to answering for themselves. Because the Enneagram essentially is saying, here is your view of the world. Here is maybe your self-image within the world that you are viewing. And these are the things that you assume about reality absolutely and unconsciously. Well, if you ask someone to look at that and say, well, so what, what is your basic unconscious <laughs> assumption about reality? It's like trying to see the air. But gradually, over time, you can begin to realize that what the Enneagram is pointing at and what it's saying, essentially, is that there's a pattern, that you have a, a pattern that you're reacting from, that other people in your life that you're close to 
are seeing the world in an authentically different way, in a genuine way that is distinctly different from you. And it's a little bit like a nationality. There's a parallel to Enneagram styles. If you think of them almost as like psychological nationalities, your Enneagram style is something that's kind of deep, involuntary, and pervades your behavior and your assumptions. And yet, ultimately, it's not you. Ultimately, it's not who you are. I mean, if I came in and I said, hi, I'm Tom and I'm an American, and that's all you need to know about me. The therapists in the audience would start immediately casting around for various pathologies that I could be manifesting. It would be a strange thing to say. It would be a strange indicator that I was over-identified with something, that I was over-identified with an aspect of my experience or an aspect of who I was, and I was making it into a complete identity. That's a good way to think about what happens when people over-identify with the premises of their Enneagram style when they're caught up in their storyline, when they believe that their strategy for making sense of reality is the only strategy, and that they believe their premises and their, their deepest beliefs are statements about the real world rather than what author Richard Rohr calls one-ninth of the truth, where you're perceiving a slice of reality, a selective part of reality. That's a good way to think about when somebody is caught up in the premises of their Enneagram style and quote-unquote fixated and quote-unquote compulsive. This is what they say in the literature. Somebody has a fixation. Well, it's more like over-identifying with your premises and clinging to them too much. It's sort of like somebody climbs up into a tree and makes a little house up there and kicks away the ladder and now claims they were born in a tree. You over-identify with something and then necessarily under-identify with something else. One thing that happens when people become aware of their Enneagram style is they become aware of their biases. And if they identify with their Enneagram style or with a self-image that is consistent with their Enneagram style too much, then it always means that they're under-identifying with something else. In other words, if I'm an eight and I have to be strong, then usually my shadow is my own weakness or my own potential for weakness. If I'm a seven and I have to be cheerful and happy and keep things upbeat, that means somewhere there is lurking a shadow for depression or for my own pain. Now, the key words in this are have to. In other words, if somebody is compulsive within their Enneagram style, if somebody does it in an automatic way, in a quote-unquote fixated way, then that's an indicator that they don't have a choice. And when they don't have a choice, then they're usually doing it automatically and unconsciously, and then that means that there's this other side to it. And as you grow and change and as you work on yourself, encountering that other side is often a useful thing. And in the material we're going to cover this weekend, there may be a little of that. In other words, I'm a counterphobic six, and one of the things that I notice for sixes is that the shadow has to do with power. You have to learn how to integrate your own power instead of projecting it which is an utterly different setup and bias than from what eights go through, where eights are over-identified with their own power and they're under-identified with their own potential for weakness and vulnerability. So those are different dilemmas in a way, but also what the material this weekend is going to show us is some possible shadows, both dark shadows and light shadows. In other words, from my core Enneagram style, there are built-in connections to these other Enneagram styles. And some of them are, could be loaded. Some of them could be problematic. Some of them could represent areas of difficulty. And then all of them would represent capacities and talents and latent resources that can be called upon and cultivated and used. And so 
Although the workshop this weekend will be primarily diagnostic in the sense that we're just going to try and flesh out and make all of these distinctions come alive for you and so you can see them in 3D. They will also suggest that there are a number of hidden resources, that each one of these connections is a resource. Each one of these connections represents talents and abilities and capacities that you have that can be cultivated and developed and applied to difficulties that you might create for yourself within the purview of your core Enneagram style. Let me get an idea of how many people don't really know their Enneagram style exactly. Okay, so that's still a work in progress. And how many people don't know anything about the Enneagram? Okay, so we have one. And then some people have read books but haven't really been in seminars. And then other people have been in seminars of mine and uh, seminars of other people. And so you've been working on it for a while in some ways. Part of my job is to build a big enough corral for us all to inhabit so that the beginners and the more advanced people all can take something for themselves, hopefully equally. I would say to the beginners that it's more likely this will be somewhat confusing and it'll be like a tsunami of information and insight just washing across you. At the same time, if you don't try to clutch on to every aspect of it, then there will be a number of things that will stick with you or a number of things that will help you understand yourself better or help you understand your relationship with other people better and specific people in your lives. Also, I want to say that these stress and security points and wings are sometimes debated within Enneagram literature or represented differently from one book to another. And the take that I would like to offer you this weekend is pretty neutral. That is to say, all of these are just connections and the connections can be positive or negative. Now, in some books they say that the stress and security points are specific kinds of connections that lead to trouble or lead to uh, redemption or directions of health and directions of integration. Everyone who's ever taught the Enneagram that way learned it in a Catholic context. And I've traced this whole thing back to one man about 20 years ago who had passed it over. Although I haven't met Claudio Naranjo face to face, everyone blames it on him. But I really haven't found this to be terribly salient. What they say is, that within your core Enneagram style, you have a connection to a stress point and a connection to a security point. And then they say that when you're under stress, you tend to manifest the behavior of this other style, almost like borrowing the behavior from it and borrowing characteristics from it. And you can seem like you have another Enneagram style altogether when you're under stress. And then also you can seem like you have another Enneagram style altogether when you're feeling secure. Maybe if you think of the difference between having a deadline at work versus being on holiday, being on vacation. Different sides of your character would come out. You'd manifest aspects of yourself in different ways. And somebody who knew you would know that there were these other sides to your character as well as your basic Enneagram style, your basic character, your basic strategy for making sense of reality. So far, so good. I can go along with that. I've noticed in myself and in working with other people that they do behave differently under stress and they go to, to one particular Enneagram style. But actually, I've also noticed that they go to other Enneagram styles as well when they're under stress. And so, actually, it's more useful to think of this in an open way and observe your own behavior or the behavior of other people and discover for yourself whether there's more to it than that. But basically what the books will say is 
I'm a uh, six, and so my stress point is three. And what they say about it is that under stress, I would go into type A behavior, which is to a certain degree true. If you're uh, afraid or if you're under a deadline or if you're under pressure in some way, your way to respond to it is by doing a lot of things and trying to scramble and put things together and catch up to yourself and compensate and, and try to protect against and ward off disaster or whatever it is you're thinking at a particular time. And that's true in a limited way in my experience. The other connection that I have is from six to nine, which would be called my security point. And that would be the one I might go into when I'm on vacation. In another context, when there wasn't a deadline, then I might just get relaxed and kick back and just let everything drift. I'm sort of an airhead, and I think it has to do with both my wing and also this security point, because I go very receptive and kind of dreamy and kind of lose details and am easily distracted. What I notice, however, is that when I'm under stress, when I go into this mode where I'm maybe behaving in a type A kind of way, there is also, in addition, an element of nininess. I'm not only in a type A mode, but I'm also kind of spaced out at the same time. I make mistakes, or I lose the details of things, or I lose the big picture. And I experience it as a combination of those two. Not just the stress point, but the stress and security point together. That's a finer distinction, maybe somewhat confusing for the beginners, but I want to just to have you think about how it might be more than just going to one style, even when you're facing a deadline and under stress or when you're on holiday. The other thing about these points that I have noticed over and over again is that they are not just things that you go to when you're under stress or feeling secure. They're like sides to your character. There's characterological connections, they're ongoing connections, just as are the wings. I mentioned here in the notes the Dickens character of Scrooge. Scrooge is a five. Now, in Enneagram literature, they might say that under stress he would go to seven. The dynamic for fives is you go under stress, you go to seven, and when you're healthy and when you're relaxed, you go to eight. And we'll talk about this as we go, but basically if a five is kind of shy and sort of socially hesitant, if they get in touch with their eight streak, it brings a certain earthiness and a certain motive force and a certain power and a certain ability to assert themselves in the world and to say what they want. A lot of times fives will hold back and hesitate and stutter in their actions and assume that the world is non-negotiable and that if they say what they want, that other people will just overwhelm them. And so when fives are more connected to this eightness within themselves, one of the advantages of it is that they can come out and they can say what they want and they can approach things as uh, negotiations among equals. It also gives them leadership qualities and a decisiveness and some other really helpful things, helpful with the dilemma of the core style. But there are also fives who are consistently eightish. And a very good example would be Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. He's cranky. He's a misanthropic. He's hostile to the world. And he's consistently that way. It's not just that he goes that way under stress. It's that he's that way all the time. And there are fives who are like this. There are fives who have a kind of antisocial go to hell, get out of my face, get away from me kind of attitude. And they broadcast it. And there's eightness in it. But it's the low side of eight. It's not healthy eightness. It's eightness in the service of being antisocial, eightness in the service of maintaining the five's defensive stance, 
and eightness in the service of protecting the five against having to interact with the world and also maybe to qualm their inner fears. So these connections, as stress and security points, are not just contextual, but they are semi-constant. There are things that you not only go to in certain circumstances, but there are also ongoing running connections that constitute sides to your character. Does that make sense? And we'll approach them that way as uh, semi-constant connections. And as I said before, that means, therefore, they are potential resources or potential limitations. This is worth knowing about either way. And then with the wings, there is a, a built-in style to the, the Enneagram style on either side of your core Enneagram style. And what most people report is that they're more aware of and more conscious of one wing rather than the other. And so we say somebody is a nine with a one wing, or somebody is, a, uh, in my case, I'd be a six with a five wing. But that also is not quite a complete description. Now, if I'm a six with a five wing, what I might notice in my experience and be most conscious of is uh, my connection to five, and I could notice that that has a high side and that has a low side, depending on how I use it and depending on where I am in my life at a particular moment in time. But my other wing would still be there in a latent sort of way. And after I took this idea on and began to self-study and observe other people and talk to other people that I, that I worked with, it was quite obvious to me that there was a latent wing and that the connection to the other wing was also semi-constant. It was just less conscious and maybe less emphasized, maybe less leaned upon. And so that is there as well. And you may notice that you particularly identify with one wing, but it helps to go a little bit further and try to find out what might be the influence of the other wings based on the descriptions that I'll be offering you. Probably two-thirds of the population, this is not scientific, but about two-thirds of the population are most aware of having one wing and strongly identifying with that. It still means the other wing is latent, but th that's the one you're conscious of. And then there are a number of people who are conscious of both wings. They say, you know, well, I've got a five wing and I've got a seven wing, and it's pretty clear to me that they're both there and that they both are equally influential in my daily life and behavior. And so they experience it much more as having both wings about equal strength, which is good because, you know, if you have one really strong wing and one weak wing, you just tend to fly in circles. <laughs> the other thing that we'll see this weekend is that these connections make a certain amount of sense in terms of our relationships. People often discover that some built-in connection to their core Enneagram style has been played out over and over again in their relationships. In other words, I'm a six and I've got a connection to nine and a connection to three. Well, my wife is a nine. So in a way, I've married my connection. And she's married her connection. She's a nine, she has a connection to six, and she has a connection to three as well. Now. I've seen people marry the, some of their connections uh, very often. The conventional wisdom in psychology is that you marry your mother or your father at least once. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a terrible thought. But an easier way to understand that is that you marry your mother or your father's Enneagram style at least once. Or you marry intention to it. In other words, somebody will say, well, you know, my mother was an eight, and I'm not going to marry an eight. I'll marry a two, you know, who is not an eight. Uh, then six months later, the person's acting like an eight anyway, you know. There's, that kind of thing will happen. I've seen people marry their wings pretty often as well. In other words, I have a, one friend who is a six with a five wing. His seven wing's kind of latent. He doesn't develop it very much. And then he's married to a really expansive seven. 
So the seven keeps spark plugging the relationship along, keeps things on a high note, keeps the two of them in a kind of overdrive. And then my friend, who is more ruminative and more introspective and more introverted, is actually a shadow for his, his seven mate as well. But this works in a good way. In other words, there are light shadows and there are dark shadows. The light shadows generally represent your potentials, inner potentials that are unfulfilled, that you're aspiring to, or that are potentials within you in any case. And then dark shadows represent, would be a way to talk about the kind of people who get on your nerves, drive you crazy, push your buttons, or whom you fear or dislike with a kind of instant intensity. And both of those, properly speaking, would represent aspects of your own psychology, misplaced, projected, focused off onto someone else, and, and then misattributed to somebody else. If I had a dark shadow in um, a one, if ones pushed my buttons when they were judgmental and when they were scolding and so on, then I might not realize that it's an internal dynamic, that it's something I'm doing to myself. I might just look at the nearest one and say, you know, I hate people like that. They're always driving me crazy and judging. They're like the party poopers of the world. What's the matter with them? And then I'm projecting it. I'm kind of seeing it off on them, but not recognizing that the reason it pushes my buttons is that it mimics something that I do to myself. In other words, I have a little inner one who sits on my shoulder judging me all day long. And then when this person comes along and says, you know, you really should have done that better. You, know, you made a lot of mistakes. Whatever that comment is that's coming in from the outside, that's amplified through the voice of the little one that sits on my shoulder and talks to me. To me, these are like guidelines or ways to think about what you might work on next. In other words, if I recognize that I've got a certain kind of charge and I've got a certain kind of shadow with a, a certain kind of person, I might take that as something that I need to face within myself or integrate within myself or come to terms with somehow within myself instead of just projecting it, instead of just misattributing it to other people. And in a similar way, a light shadow, you might recognize from studying the Enneagram that are, there are certain styles you admire, or the high side of it anyway, the capacities that they have, that you have a notion of, boy, it'd be really great to be that way, or boy, it'd be really nice to have those abilities come to me so easily. That represents a potential within yourself. Somebody says somewhere in some pop psychology book, if you can think it, you are it. In other words, if you tend to think about it and tend to be attracted to certain kinds of people, it means something about your own inner potentials. Now, this does sound totally narcissistic on one level. You know, occasionally I'd get clients sometimes who would come in and they'd say, well, the universe has been sending me people lately to help me get over my narcissism. You know, things like this. <laughs> totally self-referential. And I certainly don't mean it to be that antisocial. And, and it's obvious that the other person has an independent existence. But on another level, in terms of psychologically integrating yourself and using the Enneagram as a tool and a template to do that, it's also useful sometimes to stand back from relationships that have problems in them or bother you or where, where you admire something in somebody and ask yourself, okay, could this represent a part of myself? Could this represent some way in which I'm not square with myself, not together somehow, haven't faced a way in which I adapted and limited myself based on what happened to me in the past? Another way to think about when somebody is overusing their Enneagram style and overusing their strength is as a defense. 
And usually the defense is against not so much what's happening in the present as a combination of what's happening in the present and what happened in the past and how the person is unresolved with the past, how they have not come to terms with it somehow. They made an adaptation when they were growing up that meant that they just moved into one room of a large house and they closed off the other rooms and over-specialized by staying in this one region of their consciousness and their awareness. And so in that over-specialization, there is an attempt to get away from something else. And as you grow and change, and as you live life longer, and as you work with something like the Enneagram, one thing that can then happen is all the pieces of you come back together, so to speak. The story that I often tell in workshops is about Paddington, one of the early explorers of the Antarctic, who was caught out in a storm on an ice floe one day. And he built an igloo and crawled inside of it to wait out the storm. And the storm lasted for a good 10 days or so. So Paddington is sitting there inside of this ice house, waiting out the storm. And after four or five days, he was starting to feel sensorily deprived. And he started noticing strange visions. And one of the things that he also noticed about the inside of the house was that the walls of the igloo, the walls of the ice house, seemed to be getting closer to him. And he thought, I'm just going wiggy from vitamin deficiency and sensory deprivation. And then he realized, no, it was true. The walls were getting closer. And then he figured out what was happening. He's sitting inside the ice house. The ice house is there to protect him from the storm. It's absolutely essential. It saved his life. But the longer he sits inside the ice house, the more he is exhaling as he breathes. And when he exhales, the moisture from his breath sticks to the inner wall of the igloo. So the walls really literally are getting thicker the longer he stays inside. And so this structure that he had created to protect him from a storm, his shelter, the, the very thing that saved him, is slowly turning into a coffin. And that's a way to think about an Enneagram style and the excesses of it, uh, do, the doing too much of it, the over-relying on the strategy. It's a kind of defense, a kind of defensive shelter. You take on defenses early in, in life, early in childhood. People will understand their childhood world in a certain way and come to very strong conclusions about the nature of reality when they're six years old, nine years old, ten years old, and then they'll carry those forward in time and they'll sort of paint them on the world as they go along. They'll take a childhood worldview and, and inflate it to a, a larger worldview and mistake the two. And so when somebody is overreacting from within their Enneagram style, it's as though they are in two places at once. They're in the present and they're in the past. A part of them is reacting to past circumstances, past phantoms, past things that happened, past adaptations that they made, and they're not quite realizing it. They believe that it's more about the present, but it's really about the past. And they believe that they're all there, but actually a part of them doesn't know what year it is. And it also doesn't know what century it is, and it also doesn't know what millennium it is. The part of the person is attempting a 20th century solution to a 21st century problem. So that's a kind of overview, attitudinal approach that we'll take. And so what I'd like to do is have a format where I'll talk about these various connections. I'll talk about stress, security points, and wings for each of the styles. If people would be willing, what I'd like to do is if anybody knows their Enneagram style, and I'm talking about that particular Enneagram style, if you could come up and just listen to the discussion or, and then describe from your own experience anything that you relate to or don't relate to, 
whatever makes sense to you, whatever you've struggled with, whatever you recognize or haven't recognized in the past but now have been learning about yourself. It would be really useful for the rest of us to hear this in a first-person sort of way and for it to be not just me lecturing but rather you know everyone participating. A lot of times the value of coming to Enneagram workshops is that people who are in the audience may watch a panel of people talk about their lives and experience and in doing so the Enneagram really comes alive for them. It goes from 2D to 3D as we say. So that was what I was hoping to do. If that's okay with you that would be how I would propose that we proceed and I'd like to just motor through the styles over the course of the weekend. In a little while we'll take a break and then we'll just start with the ones and jump in. It'll be a lot of material and a lot of information. Like I said before, just let it wash over you if you're a relative beginner. You'll find bits and pieces as we go and maybe more than that. You know, things that you can identify with personally, the things that might be helpful in your relationships with other people, and things that would add to your Enneagram knowledge in general.